This week on the show, a guide to problem solving for software developers with examples. A guide to problem solving for software developers with examples, making 20% time work. Long live networks, OpenBSD router on the SG105W. Set up a simple and actually working WireGuard server, Unix Edition Zero. How to be a minus 10x engineer and more. This week's episode of BSD. BSD Now, episode 518, Unix edition 0, recorded on the 3rd of July 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow, find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedikt Reuschling. And I'm Jason Tubner. Hey, it's good to have you back on the show listening to us. And we, of course, have prepared a nice show for you with all kinds of interesting bits and pieces from the BSD world and around. And uh, we're starting this time with a bit of a different headline. This one is not about a recent uh, BSD development or cool headlines or a Clara article, for example. This one is something more about uh, software development. We have a guide to problem solving for software developers with examples for you. And I guess that's not limited to software engineers as a whole. Uh, so follow along. Um, this is over at thevaluable.dev. It starts with, if I ask you out of the blue, what's the role of a developer? What would you answer? Coding all day? Drinking coffee? Complaining about the management? Uh, to me, or to the block uh, author here, to me, a developer is first and foremost a problem solver, simply because solving problems is the most important and the most difficult part of our job. After all, even if our code is perfect, clear, performing great, a masterpiece of form and meaning, it's useless if it doesn't solve the problem it was meant to solve. So let's dive into problem solving today. More specifically, we'll see in this article. So how to define a problem and the difference sometimes made between problem solving and decision making. Why some problems should not be solved. The two wide categories of problems you can encounter. Why it's important to correctly define the problem and how to do so. How to explore the solution space. Why deferring a problem might be the best decision to make in specific situations. And why reflecting on the whole process afterwards can help you in the future. So this article is mostly based on uh, the author's own experience, even if they apply uh, some ideas they, they found in books and papers. So they have our plan. Now it's time to dive deep into the difficult but rewarding process of problem solving. Uh, problem solving and decision making. They have a Lewis Carroll quote at the beginning with uh, Humpty Dumpty and Alice. Uh, when I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in rather a scornful tone, it means just what I chose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, Alice said, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master. That's all. Okay, so words are ambiguous. They can mean different things for each of us. So let's first begin to agree on a definition of problem solving here to be sure we're on the same page. Uh, they quote two dictionaries, the American Heritage Dictionary, saying that a problem is a question to be considered, solved, and answered. And also the other 
dictionary is the Oxford, Oxford Learner's Dictionary, which defines a problem is a thing that is difficult to deal with or to understand. Uh, in short, in any problem, there is some degree of uncertainty. If you're certain of the solution, the problem is already solved. Nothing would need to be considered, solved, or answered. Information is useful to reduce this uncertainty. The quantity is often not the most important, but the quality will be decisive. If I tell you that 90% of my readers are extremely intelligent, would it help you to solve a problem in your daily job? Uh, I bet it wouldn't. It's, it's information nonetheless, but its usefulness for you is close to zero. This is an extreme example, but it highlights an important point. Before collecting any data, define your problem clearly. Then, according to the problem, decide what data you need. Yes, uh, yet, many companies out there begin to collect the data and then decide what problem to solve. Hmm. We'll come back to that soon in this article. So, uh, is there a problem to solve? Whenever you or someone else sees a problem, you should always ask yourself this simple question. Is it really a problem and should we solve it now? So ask yourself the following questions. Why is this problem important to solve? Would be solving the problem creates some value? And what value? What would happen if the problem was not solved? And what desired outcome do we expect by solving the problem? Okay. Uh, if the problem doesn't bother anybody and solving it doesn't create any value, why allocating effort and time to solve it? It sounds obvious, but it's an important point nonetheless. More often than not, I see developers heading first in problem solving without asking themselves if they should solve them at the first place. The most common examples I can think of are useless refactoring. I saw developers refactor parts of code bases which never change or is rarely executed at runtime. In the mind of a developer, the code itself is the problem. Refactoring is the solution. Uh, they also remember a similar case. A developer refactored part of the code base, which was basically never used. We discovered months later, when we had more and more users using this specific part of the code base, that the refactoring didn't really simplify anything. To the contrary, we had to refactor the code again. The first refactoring tried to solve a problem which didn't exist. Then there's types of problems. I would define here two wide categories of problems. The problems with a or multiple clear solutions with what the literature call problem solving and the problems without clear solution. It is sometimes called decision making instead of problem solving. In fact, if the problem you're trying to solve has a clear accepted answer, it's very likely it has been solved already. It's often the case for mechanical technical problems. For example, let's say that you need to order a list. You just have to search on the wild internet how to do so in your programming language of choice and you're, uh, you're done. Okay, you can ask in AI too, or Stack Overflow, or whatever. So in their experience, most technical problems have one or multiple accepted solutions. They won't speak about these kinds of problems at length in this article, since they're the easiest to solve. But when you're in front of a problem which has no clear solution, even after doing some research, it's where things get more complicated. Uh, they'd argue that most problems you'll face as a software developer are of this category. Problems which are directly linked to the domain of the company you work with are often specific because they depend on the domain and are complex. For example, they are working for a company providing a learning platform for medical students who want to become doctors, among other services. This context is changing because the real world is changing. Medicine is no exception. So recently, we had to create a new data structure for the knowledge we provide. These data structures are directly linked to the domain, medicine here. But what data structures to create? How can they adapt to ever-changing environments? 
how to capture the data in the most meaningful way with understandable naming for other developers. There's more on that, but uh, let's move to the next part, defining the problem. Correctly stating the problem, after determining that we indeed have some kind of problem, it's tempting to try to find a solution directly. Be patient. It's better to look at the problem more closely first. If you don't specify well the problem, you might not solve it entirely. It's also possible that you end up solving the wrong problem or the symptoms of a problem. That is, other minor problems created by a root problem. Often, the ideal scenario is to find the root problem, even if you don't want to tackle it first. In any case, it's always useful information. So they provide the example that not long ago, our users didn't find the content they were searching for using our search functionality on our learning platform. We could have directly solved the problem by asking the search team to adjust that for us, but this problem was only a symptom. It wasn't the first time that we had to spend time and energy trying to communicate to the search team what we wanted to fix. The real root problem here was that we didn't have any ownership of our search results. The solution? We created a better API communicating with the search team to be able to adjust ourselves the search results in a more flexible manner. Then there's solving problems in the team. Trying to describe and think about a problem is, is a great beginning, but it's even better if you do it as a team. You can exchange experience, opinions, and it's easier to look at a problem from multiple angles when multiple developers are involved. First, make sure that everybody in the team is aware of the problem. Defining it all together is the best. If you have a doubt that somebody is not on the same page, you can re-explain it using different words. It might bring more insights and ideas to the discussion. Then there is exploring the solution space. Now that we've defined the problem, though about it, now that we've defined the problem, thought about it with our team, try to look at it from different angles, it's time to try to find solutions, or at least to make a decision. What is a good decision? The one which will bring you closer to your desired outcome. It sounds obvious, but there can be some ego involved in discussions which will push us to try to be right, even if you're not the best solution in the current context. Our personal incentives can conflict with the company's best interests. It's always good to try to stay aware of that. Uh, each of these items have much more uh, following up. It's just a little teaser nugget for you to dive deeper into the article. Then there's a part about deferring the problem. In some cases, you might be hesitant to try to solve a problem if there is still too much uncertainty around it. In that case, it might be the best solution to defer solving the problem altogether. Deferring the problem means that you don't solve it now. You keep things as they are until you get more information to reduce the uncertainty enough. And they provide an example. We had a problem in the company they worked with some time ago. We have dosages which can be discovered in articles, but users didn't really find them, and nobody really knew why. Because of this lack of information, the problem was not tackled right away, but deferred. From there, data have been collected over time, allowing us to understand the scope of the problem better. Okay. Yeah, there's a bit more at the end, so we'll leave you with that, because the whole article is well worth reading. And uh, yeah, thanks to the author for writing it. Moving on to making 20% time work. Following Google's lead, many companies have instituted 20% time for their employees. This is one day per week in which employees can work on projects of their own choosing. The practice keeps developers motivated and sharp, produces tools to solve company problems, and in the best case, creates open source which builds prestige and helps recruitment. But there's one problem with 20% time. It takes discipline to pull it off. 
without clear direction, the open source day can devolve into an unstructured quagmire, wasting money and demotivating all involved. I'd like to share a technique I developed to organize teamwork on an open source days. It helps each person do the work that they love while coordinating everyone into an efficient machine. I noticed remarkable results after applying it for a few weeks. My coworkers went from diffuse experiments to regularly making tools that would trend on GitHub. It felt great, and best of all, it was reproducible. Well needed some background into understanding the technique. Open source, in fact any project, requires various kinds of contributions to succeed. A thriving project is more than a pile of code. It's the packaging, explanation, outreach, and empathy of maintainers that make a good project great. I'll begin by classifying contributions and then explain how to put them into a contribution matrix to coordinate the team. The acronym, B-A-S-E-D-E-F. There are seven main types of project contributions. To make them easy to remember, I use the acronym B-A-S-E-D-E-F. The acronym will form the kernel of organizing an inspired hack day. We'll see how this works later, but first let's examine each letter. B is for blog. The first way to contribute to a project is to blog about it. When you stumble upon a project written by someone else, your coworker say, you have fresh perspective on how it works. You tend to see a clear, high level overview of the project, and this makes you the perfect person to write an introductory blog post explaining the project. You can compare it to other projects or explain how to get started using it. Healthy projects need the perspective of many people. The next way to contribute is to apply the project in one of your own. The best thing for a new tool is to put it to use. For example, my friend wrote a shell script testing framework. I decided to try testing some shell scripts on my system with the framework. Doing so revealed missing features that he subsequently added. The next type of contribution suggest is as useful as it's simple to do. To try the project documentation and see if you can have one small victory in less than five minutes. This is called the five minute test. After trying it out, tell the project maintainer how it went. What was confusing, suggest improvements. Now we get into the coding territory. Letter E stands for extend. This is where you add a new feature, either of your own invention or inspired either by an existing feature request on GitHub. Not much to say about this one. Consider adding a change log if the project does not have one. Document. It's everything from writing a separate suite of docs to improve error messages to designing tutorials. This type of contribution overlaps somewhat with the blog, but skews more towards in-depth technical writing. Making concrete examples goes a long way to towards leading new users deeper into a project. Nearing the end of the list, we have evangelize. This means emailing your friends about the project or submitting it to a news aggregation site. However, check with the project leader before publicizing the project. They may prefer to fix certain problems before getting a rush of new users. But don't forget the old saying that if you're not a little embarrassed by your project, then you've waited too long to share it. The final major type contribution is a fix. This covers 
both fixing specific bugs and improving the general process of project development. The latter includes adding a test suite, enabling continuous integration, or using static code analyzers. Good automated tests that run against pull requests reduce the project maintainer's burden. The process. Now we have a vocabulary of contributions. We'll use it in a diagram I call the contribution matrix. Here's how it works. It's Friday morning, the start of the company 20% time. Some people know exactly what they want to work on, others aren't so sure, and perhaps unworn and perhaps unaware of the current project possibilities. To start, we ask each person to add to a vertical list of projects names on the left side of a whiteboard. These are projects the group can work on. It's fine and in fact common for people to list their own pet projects. Here's an example of a whiteboard of four projects. So he's got a list of four projects there. When everybody is satisfied that no relevant projects are omitted, go around the group and have each person give a very quick explanation of what each project is so everyone is up to speed. Now write a horizontal list at the top of the whiteboard to form a grid. This is where you put the B-A-S-E-D-E-F as column headings. Uh, for each of the projects. Ask each person to add their initials to three cells that interest them. Perhaps JN wants to blog about Project X or AB wants to document Testron 3000. The grid will fill with initials. Here's where the team gets direct feedback of the most effective way to focus their effort. Some projects will emerge as more popular than others. They'll have more columns of their rows filled with initials. Remember, each person has volunteered for three possible contributions. Each person now chooses from their original three tasks, which consolidates the collective work on as few projects as possible. This technique assures that all projects are considered, that everybody is excited with their task, and the group makes big progress on the focus list of projects. If your company has a 20% time policy, I'd encourage you to try this technique. It works well for an in-person team, but you can do it with distributed teams via Google Spreadsheet. If you do not yet provide time for your employees to contribute to open source code, that this approach provides a good framework for a trial day. It's also useful to apply to internal projects for improving documentation or paying off technical debt. It's a good post. Uh, I think it just doesn't apply to 20% uh, time or open source projects. Uh, uh, I see how this could be even useful in my own team at work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this should be uh, tried out in each team to see if that is valuable. But at least I find it a good uh, couple of practical things to get started with and try them out. Okay. Let's go into the news roundup this week. Long life networks. Here we go. This is uh, interesting as a title, and it certainly is. So the netbook term was uh, used around 2010 to describe small laptops. They could be anywhere from 8-inch to 11-inch in screen size. One of the most popular lines of the netbooks were the Asus Triple E PCs. Remember those? They, uh, the appeal for them was clear. You could bring this tiny computer around and take advantage of any free Wi-Fi connection be it on a train, in a pub, or at school, to surf the web. Netbooks had an unfortunate destiny for at least two reasons. First, 
Laptop technology was not a point where you could have a small, relatively powerful and cheap device all in one. Most netbooks were underpowered and struggled to run Windows out of the box. Second, smartphones and tablets that came out very shortly after quickly overtook the netbooks' market share and sent them to oblivion. This post is going to be in two parts. First, they want to talk about the netbooks they got in 2010 and how it turned out to be useful in 2022. And in the second part, they're going to list a list of steps uh, they took to set it up after reinstalling OpenBSD on it. So in the first part, they talk about my dark star. So how uh, they got this machine back in 2010, when I was in high school, I started going to uh, four or five day long trips about once every two months or so. I did not have a laptop, only a desktop PC. So my mother thought it was a good idea to get me a netbook. She chose an Asus uh, 1001PX, a very standard 10-inch netbook. Um, it is in many ways an unremarkable machine with one gigabyte of RAM and a weak dual-core CPU, but it got its job done. So they mentioned that they ran some Windows monstrosities on that one, but switched to uh, Slackware, but decided to try out Arch in this one, so this might be the one they used. Uh, they used the hostname Darkstar because it was default on Slackware and it nicely fit its black uh, plastic. You can see a picture if you go to the uh, article linked in our show notes. I have used that name for this laptop on every other OS I installed on it ever since. Arch Linux was a bad choice since I would use this netbook only once every two months. Every time I updated it, something broke. Or as an Arch fanboy would say nowadays, something required manual intervention. At some point, I got rid of Arch and installed Slackware. I also used it without problems at the beginning of university in 2013, but after a few months, I bought a more powerful 15-inch regular laptop. All in all, I haven't used my Darkstar much, but it was a useful tool. Then there was distro hopping in 2020. When the first lockdowns came in March 2020, I decided to use my netbook for some little experiments. Nothing crazy, just trying out some distros and play around with them. I had not distro hopped since 2011 or so. I installed Alpine first. It was fine, but the lack of man pages by default did not amuse me. Then I tried Void that I ended up installing on my main laptop later that year, and I'm still using it as my main OS on to this day. Finally, I decided to try something different and went with OpenBSD, and this is getting interesting for us now. Backpacking in 2022. Earlier this year, I traveled around Europe for a couple of weeks, mainly to attend the Rubik's Cube European Championship and other events. I wanted to travel with just my backpack, with no suitcase, and my main laptop is quite large and heavy. did not want to rely on my smartphone alone, so I thought that carrying around my old netbook could be a good compromise. Oh yeah, good idea. I kept OpenBSD uh, because I figured I would mostly be using it uh, in TTY only mode, no X, and the command line utilities seem more polished and cohesive on OpenBSD than on Linux. Using something like Firefox was doable in case of emergency, but definitely not a pleasant experience. Some things like streaming videos from YouTube were completely impossible, but there were workarounds like using YouTube DIP or DLP. Is it DLP? I guess so. Um, so we can download the videos and watch them uh, separately. I decided to buy a larger battery that also made it stand a bit taller. Uh, kind of like a typewriter and some extra memory. I maxed it out to two gigabytes. I, it cannot handle more. Since the hard drive was not easily accessible without taking apart the whole thing, I did not upgrade to an SSD drive at first. I was afraid of not being able to detach and reattach the keyboard and touchpad connectors without damaging them. 
So the little netbook turned out to be more useful than I thought. The organization team at a cube competition I attended during that trip was short on laptops, and mine was perfectly capable of displaying PDF files. The fact that there was no file manager installed made it a bit hard for other people to operate it when I was not around, but in the end we managed to use it. Okay, uh, there's a bit more about that, but let's go to part two, installing and configuring OpenBSD. So they talk about how to get that going with a lot of descriptions and uh, commands to enter and how the output looks like. So first of all, they apply security patches using syspatch after the install, that which is we covered in uh, OpenBSD installed in previous episodes fairly uh, yeah, thorough, so I guess you can jump right into this one. Then enabling do as for the regular user, and they also show how to swap the caps lock and escape keys, so in case you want to have that, do this. Generating SSH keys, we covered that using SSH keygen multiple times, and then they, uh, in this part, set up and install sync thing, so that you can share files and folders between uh, devices. And that is also described in detail. And they conclude with, I like my netbook and I'm glad that I found some practical use for it even after 12 years. Its size made, made it a nice sofa companion and its clicky keyboard is just a pleasure to type on. Much better than the mushy one on my main laptop. It is always a pleasure for me to make good use of a piece of hardware that most people would consider obsolete and throw away without thinking about it twice. Netbooks are not useful. Netbooks were not successful in their time, but I think similar devices could find their niche today. After all, 13-inch laptops are quite popular among the few who actually need one over a tablet or a smartphone. I'm even considering getting an 11-inch laptop as my main device, but of course I would never replace my current one as long as it's working fine. Long live netbooks. To conclude, here's a picture of my netbook being used to write this very post. Ah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool. Excellent. Good to see uh, hardware being reused. Yeah, right. And I mean, Unix runs on that one pretty fine, depending on what you use it for. And yeah, see, like email and a bit of web browsing here and there, perfectly fine use case. Exactly. And if you're going on holiday like he, he had, it's, you know, you're less uh, cautious about uh, it you know, disappearing on you because it's like, you know, it uh, looks old and hacky and that sort of stuff. But, yeah. uh, you know, you, when you're hiking and things like that, you don't want to have a, a like you know a flashy MacBook Air or something like that. Yeah, you know, something durable like that that's that's uh, on its second half of its life is far better to use. Moving on to the next article, OpenBSD router on a SG105W. This post details my experience with OpenBSD 7.3 on a Sophos SG105W Rev1 from November 2014 as a router and firewall. So this article basically delves into reusing uh, end-of-life hardware from the vendor and installing OpenBSD on it. The default BIOS settings didn't let me install OpenBSD without issues. I got spammed with NMI port messages. The culprit is the BIOS CSM compatibility sport module, which I completely disabled. I configured the whole system to use UEFI. I also enabled the speed step and enabled BMX EPT. I replaced the internal spinning disk with a 30 gigabyte SanDisk SSD. The installed Wi-Fi module is not supported by OpenBSD, so I used an Atheros AR 9285 from an old laptop I had. 
generally one has to keep an eye on the Wi-Fi module as not all are supported or supported the host AP mode in general or in OpenBSD. Moving on to the installation. The install was easy and was performed with the VGA connected screen and attached keyboard. I did not use the disk encryption features as the box is not moving and I didn't want to enter the password after a power outage. I disabled the X star related packages and games from the install. In order to be able to download software, I configured EM1 with DHCP. Serial access. In order to configure the machine via a serial connection, I added the following to etcboot.conf. And he's got STTY COM0 115200 and set TTY COM0. And specify that slash ETC has to be changed on line 6 to turn to the GE TTY and use the correct speed. So he's got listed there console slash user slash libexec slash GE TTY STD dot 115200 uh, BT220 on secure. To connect from my laptop, I used BSD 4.1 CU program. CU minus L, so then use the serial command, uh, set the speed, and parity to none. Fix hangs. The system was not running stable at first. Every 10 seconds, the system notably was hanging. This was also observable with a simple ping to any host in the network. In order to find the problem, I installed HTOP. So he's used PKG add HTOP. The hang was directly visible as a high CPU load, but I could not see any related processes. So I enabled to also show kernel threads. The process DRMWQ had high CPU load every time I also observed the hang. Quick Googling revealed the issue is caused by the Intel DRM due to no monitor being attached. The Intel DRM is nice for WS cons, but I was not using it and as such disabled it with the help of this Reddit article. So it's got a, a snippet out of Reddit. Uh, disable defaults. Disable sound as there is no need for it as there's no speaker in the device. So RCCTL stops SNDIOD and then RCCTL disable SNDIOD. I leave this SMTPD enabled as I might want to inform myself about issues with the box later on, for example, smart. Then moves on to enable low power mode. The hardware might be overkill for regular NAT and package processing. So reducing energy consumption for environmental purposes seems good. The minus L is the lowest profile. In case I need more, I can switch to dash H. So he's got uh, RCTTL enable APMD, RCTTL set APMD flags in quotes minus capital L, and RCTTL start APMD. Using CCTL HW CPU speed reveals the correct megahertz speed, which is 532 in this case. Bridge setup. In order to use the ports for the SG105W as a bridge and have a LAN interface, VTHA is used. LAN interface, so slash etc slash hostname dot VTHA zero. And then he defines the MAC address that 
wants to give the device or the interface and then the IP address for the interface. Uh, the physical interfaces slash etc hostname.em0 and .em2 and .em3 all have the following configuration. Media auto select up. Last but not least is the bridge. So slash etc slash hostname.bridge0 add emz0 add em2 add em3 add beta0 and then up. Start the network with sh slash etc slash net start. I tried to turn on TSO for the interfaces, but the driver didn't let me. In order to allow communication via the bridge, I had to add the following. Set skip on bridge 0 to slash etc slash pf.conf and reload with pfctl minus f. In order to judge the performance of the bridge, I tested with two computers directly connected first and then connected via the bridge. I measured with iperf version 2 using pkg add iperf. The tests were performed multiple times and the best result was taken. So he's got reference there. He's got uh, the initial reference between the two peers and then when it's on low power mode and then with APMD disabled. So he's got some measurements there to make the decision of what's best for their environment. Depending on these numbers, you may decide to not use APMD to regulate the speed. I had no equipment to measure the actual power consumption, so I can't judge if the savings are actually helpful. On hardware offloading, the information in MAN-EM and the IF config output suggests that the hardware offloading of checksums is in place for the device, but enabling with IF config EM0 TSO did not work. So it's getting the uh, SIO flags is not set. Wi-Fi. The Wi-Fi network provided by the ATHN0 was easy to set up after the ATHN-based card was installed. Edit the file, etc hostname.athn0, and add something like, and he's got an example there of uh, using what network ID to use and the WEA key. And bridging up the interface. Notice I did not add an internet address. I want to add the network to the bridge with ifconfig bridge0 ADDM. ATHN0. To persist with the Wi-Fi on the bridge, I added the interface to the list of interfaces in the hostname.bridge0 file. More on bridging the Wi-Fi with the LAN in the router section down below. The driver doesn't have any offloads and the performance of the Wi-Fi was not that great. Even with the device next to two antennas, 70 centimeters in distance, the measurements uh, Basically, it was getting 22.4 megabits per second. Uh, measurements with performance mode, so APMD disabled. Router. The router was configured using the router guide, roughly. Since I bridged the Wi-Fi instead of using a separate network for the configuration, it is a bit simplified. This is not a recommended setup unless you are working with Apple equipment that prefers to be in the same network. You should do the network as suggested in the router guide. You might notice that I did not configure the EM1 besides the basic setup. This is the WAN interface according to the description on the device. So we'll use a simple config here in hostname.em1 with DHCP autoconf. Luckily, my ISP provides direct ethernet and I don't have to mess with PPP connections. It moves on to the configuring the DHCP server. So there's some snippets there to 
configure the DHCP server and enable DHCP server and which uh, interface you wish to run it on. And then he goes into unbound.conf configuration for the unbound daemon running on the machine. And then further down is a simple edit of the pf.conf that got them over the line and working. The PF config is simple and only provides internet connections. My measurements show that the overhead of the firewall, the PF, is 12% compared to the previously measured line speed. Too long, didn't read. The OpenBSD project provides all you need for a simple router. The included software has good documentation. Not everything was easy and some of the problems I could only resolve with the internet, e.g. CSM issue or the bug with the i915 DRM driver. The performance of OpenBSD is decent on this old hardware and about half the line speed. If you have a one gigabit link, the router is simply not able to handle the load with the software hardware mix. That might also be related to the missing TSO. In addition, OpenBSD is not having support for the internal switch and the performance of the bridge is not line speed either. OpenBSD is not only about speed, security and correctness play an important role. If speed is a concern, you may have to spend more for the hardware that you are using. Mm -hmm. Oh, that makes a nice setup there. Okay, now we have a how-to for you, how to set up a simple and actually working FireGuard server. Uh, that sounds simple enough, and the uh, yeah, tutorial is straightforward and goes uh, like this. In my quest to get a WireGuard setup working, I have come across many guides and tutorials. All of them were missing crucial information or operating off outdated information. Often just subtle instructions are broken in a cascade with other points of potential failure. This quickly becomes a frustrating game of whack-a-mole with lots of dead ends. That being said, here's a minimal setup that works as of today on Raspberry Pi 3 with a single Ethernet connection running FreeBSD 13.2. So first off, install the required software using package install. This is WireGuard, WireGuard-tools, and libqr encode. So you can create little QR codes to make uh, scanning that with your mobile devices easier. Enable WireGuard service, service WireGuard enabled, sysrc WireGuard underscore interfaces, WG0, so that uh, the system starts the service and knows about which interface to use. You also enable IP forwarding and activate it immediately. Gateway enable equals yes for sysrc and set the sysctl net.inet.ip.forwarding equals 1. Then you start the pf service and enable it first, as well as pf log. And the little pfconf they provide uh, does not on the external interface from wg underscore net, which is their network they're using, to any on the external interface, and does a bit of scrubbing and logging of those connections as well. Then they start that service, obviously after editing the uh, pfconf, so not before. Then you generate the server keys using uh, user local etc wireguide as the directory and setting permissions there properly so that only you can access those keys, no one else snooping around. And then you use wg keygen to create both the private key and the public key for that wireguard server. You're going to need client keys as well. This example assumes an IO, uh, an IO phone, <laughs> an iPhone for naming, but the process is the same for any client. Uh, you use WG Gen key. This time you will create a key that's called iPhone underscore private dot key and one that is iPhone underscore public dot key. 
right? Fairly easy. Then you also say WG Gen PSK for the pre-shared key and uh, redirect it to a file that you aptly name iPhone underscore pre-shared dot key so you remember what that is for. Then you create the actual server configuration in local use local etc wireguard wg dot conf where you provide which interface to use, which listen port, and the private key that you created earlier, as well as the peer section where you say which IPs are actually allowed to use WireGuard, and followed by pre-shared key and public key that you also created earlier. Create then the client configuration for the iPhone in this case. Uh, similar settings there with similar config sections, interface, and the peers. And there, of course, you put in the ones you created for the iPhone uh, public and the pre-shared key as well. Okay, for additional clients, repeat the key generation with different file names, then add another peer section with a unique IP and the client's key content of the server config. Also create a respective client config as well, then restart the WireGuard after you have changed the server configuration. And now to ease transfer to the iPhone or whatever mobile device you have, generate a QR code and import the wire camera and the WireGuard app using QR encode T and C and redirect wgiphone.conf file to it so that the WireGuard service is easy set up. Last but not least, do a service WireGuard start to actually start that service, reading that config file and setting up the VPN for you. You have a couple notes at the end for your own uh, private home setup with WireGuard, but nothing too fancy, not too difficult. And with these couple of lines of config, you have your own working WireGuard server. And we now have a light-hearted article. So this is uh, how to be a minus 10 times engineer. Plus 10 times engineers may be mythical, but minus 10 times engineers exist. To become a minus 10 times engineer, simply waste 400 engineering hours per week. Combine the following strategies. Nullify the output of 10 engineers. Change requirements as far into the development cycle as possible. To avoid blame, obfuscate the requirements from the start. Create 400 hours of busy work. Ask your team to perform tasks that resemble work. Common examples include presentations, diagrams, and ticket management. Create pointless rituals. <laughs> Create 400 hours of burnout, turnover. Be thankless. Foster blame. Sow confusion. Get angry cause others to work overtime. Hold 10 engineers hostage in a technical discussion. <laughs> Let engineers discuss ideas. Encourage them to pursue elegance over pragmatism. Ensure nobody has the authority to make any decisions. Add 400 hours of communication overhead. Meetings wreck calendars to inconspicuously waste others' time, write lengthy message documents and share as widely as possible. Welcome all opinions and aim for engagement. Waste 10 weeks of wages on cloud costs. Write slow programs. Avoid DB indexes. Run single-threaded programs on 16-core machines. Opt for exotic hardware with fancy RAM and GPUs. Store data on RAM disk liberally. Don't compress anything. Pay no attention to data layouts. Create useless tools. Decide that existing solutions aren't quite what you need. Write scripts that only one person understands. If that script does something important, avoid documentation. 
add 400 hours of compilation build time. Slow builds waste time and incur compound interest. As build times increase, developers are more likely to distract themselves. To ensure developers are context switching, recompile should take at least 20 seconds. You can also write slow tests for similar effect. Write pointless tests. Create dependencies on particular variables without testing the underlying functionality. Mock function calls until no original code runs. Introduce subtle randomness into your tests so that they succeed, fail without cause. Waste 400 hours of engineering on bad architecture. Give zero consideration to how your system design will evolve over time. Alternatively, drive your team obsess over architecture decisions so that they don't have time to test their hypothesis. Waste 400 hours on deployment. Create as many environments as possible. Production and staging must differ widely. Launch fragile code with fragile build systems. Migrate your database frequently. Lose 10 hours of wages on unhappy customers. Repeatedly fail to detect and address severe bugs. Pay no attention to security vulnerabilities. Write worthless docu documentation. Explain code in private messages. Write wikis that nobody uses. Trap 10 engineers in a futile skunk worked project. Attract bright engineers and waste their potential. Undersell the difficulty of the project to management. Oversell the project's usefulness. Tell management it's almost complete until they scrap it. Add dependencies that demand 400 hours of maintenance. Engineers individually learn each library. Delay pivoting. Never admit failure. Drown your team in sunk costs. Ignore 80-20 compromises that could improve your circumstances. Hire 10 OX engineers. Opportunity costs can kill. Dead weight may not actively harm your team, but they sit there in chairs of people who could actively help. Hire 5 minus 1 engineers. Don't settle for dead weight. Actively hire engineers who could cause catastrophes and resist learning. Prevent 10 minus 1 engineers from getting 5. Don't rock boats. Leave no paper trail of failures. Vouch for bad engineering. Incur 400 hours of bug triage. Make undebuggable programs. Blast the layers of abstraction over everything. Write spaghetti code. Make everything sensitive to initial conditions. Avoid pure functions. Use dependencies liberally. Say, it works on my machine whenever possible. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great collection. I guess one of these or multiple have appeared in everyone's career at, at some point, right? <laughs> yeah, I love it. There's, there's quite a few that are too close to home. I had a bit of a private chuckle <laughs> as I was reading through those. <laughs> Yeah, these are the anti-war story that you don't want to tell because it's everyone will roll their eyes. Yeah, we know. Too true, too true. Okay, uh, going into Unix Edition 0. This is a smaller piece, but nevertheless interesting. Uh, this is Unix Edition 0. At the end of 2015, Doug McIlroy sent this email to the TUHS mailing list, Unix Hysterical, Historical Youth Society. Um, <clears throat> quote, among the papers of the late Bob Morris, I have found a Unix manual that I don't remember at all. A draft by Dennis Ritchie in the style of, but not designated as, a technical report with numbered sections and subsections. It does not resemble the familiar layout of the numbered editions. Besides the 
usual overview of kernel and shell, it describes system calls and some commands in a layout unrelated to the familiar man page style. Detailed reference or tutorial manuals for AS, ROF, DB, and ADD are included as appendices. The famous and well-justified claim that Unix contains a number of features very seldom offered even by larger systems appears on page 1. The document is evidently ancestral to both the recognized and recognized manuals and the SIGOPS CACM paper. It apparently dates from mid-1971 when Unix had been running for a few months on the PDP-11. At that time, there were only 21 system calls, a number that has increased to 34 by November when the version 1 manual was produced. And there's a PDF version and OCR scan of that particular paper. If you want to look at that in more detail, check that out. And moving on with the beastie bits today, uh, we have a new article up in the OpenBSD journal, Game of Trees 0.90 released. So the Game of Trees port, uh, which is the uh, alternative to Git, um, has now reached on the 23rd of June 2023, 0.90 status. Uh, there's further information in the Git repository of the history um, and per change ownership information. Other things that are in this version are fix segfault in gotdiff when a root commit is passed to dash C. Make got status error out as intended when invoked in a repository. Make got tree slash succeed in a work tree. Make got add star more forgiving about version paths on the command line make got merge forward branches if there are no changes to merge prevent got merge from creating commits on branches outside refs heads got and tog show reference names that begin with the prefix head as intended got d uh, unveil Repositories read only in session process while serving fetches. Got D, avoid a fail to push some refs error from no op git push. Uh, got D, avoid rewriting existing ref files when a ref update is a no op. Uh, got D, show relevant commit hashes in error messages if incoming pushes collide. Got D, wait and synchronous for child process termination. Got WebD. Avoid the slowness of needlessly traversing full commit history. Got WebD.conf. Disallow one for max commits display and report range errors. Got WebD.conf. Disallow yes no for booleans to avoid accidental on versus no. Got WebD. Avoid got web underscore render underscore index repo.git. Unexpected end of file error. GotWebD, simplify the matching of requests against servers in gotwebd.conf. Ignore files with invalid reference names while reading references from disk. Teach gotadmin cleanup to remove redundant packed files. And finally, grab gc.pid.lock file during cleanup operation to block git gc from running. So that's basically all up for what's happened in Game of Trees 0.90 release. Okay. 
and followed by ZFSP. Wait, what is that, I hear you ask? Well, here it goes from the GitHub repo, ZFSP. They have a little readme MD there that has what? ZFS in Python without reading the original C. What? That's right. How? Many hours spent staring at hex dumps and asking friends to search the internet for explanations of various features. Why? The answer, why not? It seems like it might be a fun project. So they describe the installation. The pip file lists the dependencies. There aren't many. Python 3.5 and higher is required, but 3.6 is not, as PyPy runs this code much, much faster, around four times on the test suite, and didn't support 3.6 until recently. So this project is four years old and hasn't seen any updates since. I guess this is kind of done. Um, there's a test suite. Running the test suite uh, requires one-time access to a system with ZFS to generate the test pools. Uh, run tests fixtures that is age on such a system and make the resulting directories uh, directly from the test directory. The tests themselves can be run with pi.test. Most of the tests pass, but there are some known failures. Feel free to try fixing them. The tests are heavily parameterized and attempt to run all tests against all relevant pool variations. There's a big usage, usage section. So zexplore is the main command line interface. It's reasonably well documented they hope. Uh, there's a subcommand for some limited fuse support, which depends on fusepy, developed with 2.0.4, and this is not installed by default in the pip file. So there's an example command, zexplore label dash p test slash fixtures slash feature large blocks, that lists a whole, well, internal view of that tree part. I'm not too familiar with these internals. Um, but it lets you list uh, certain data sets that are nested and uh, like whether something is gzip compressed. Not sure. This is really weird. There are caveats listed at the bottom. Lots of things uh, won't work, including RAID Z with more than four disks will probably fail with an unscrutable error. ZFS uses a magic allocation function. It's a nonlinear black box. I haven't figured it out. RAID Z, where the disks are larger than a few gigabytes, will probably also fail, but I haven't tested that at all. Some new feature flags have come out since I've worked on this seriously. Uh, yeah, and those features are obviously not supported. That things like SHA 512, 256, Skeen, and the Space Map version 2. Some feature flags that didn't exist when I was actively working on this are not implemented either because I failed to figure out how they work or because I didn't get around to trying. Pin data is the struct describing library used to read all the on disk structure. I wrote it first and it's bad. If it was doing this again, if I was doing this again today, I'd probably build something with data classes. And there's a Rust implementation of LZJB, which is not currently included, but decompression is not the bottleneck. Okay, so that is something for you to smile a little bit about and thinking about people having way too much time on their hands. BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups. And Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud, so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So. Even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. 
tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use tar, then you can use tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. Tarsnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Uh, that pretty much concludes this episode of BSD Now. Uh, again, if you find nuggets like these or interesting bits that we should cover in a future episode, send those to feedback at bsdnow.tv and it's likely that they will appear in a future episode. All right. 